This is Vermont Edition. I'm Jane Lindholm. It used to be that salting meat or fish or curing it or smoking it was a way to preserve it when there was no other way to keep your meat safe over the lean period. Back before we had refrigerators and industrial freezers and grocery stores with row upon gleaming row of vacuum-sealed meat in styrofoam trays. So I guess technically we have no real need for prosciutto or salami or ham or bacon. But come on. On. If it's not about need, today it's about desire, the sensuality of salty, rich, cured food, and it's about tradition and slow production and patience. Jeff Roberts admires those things, and he's written a new book called Salted and Cured, Savoring the Culture, Heritage, and Flavor of America's Preserved Meats. He lives in Montpelier and joins us today in the studio to talk about the history and modern delights of charcuterie. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Jane. It's a it's such a pleasure to be here. Well, it was a pleasure to read the book, although it, it made me both thirsty and hungry. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about this, this renaissance of you're preserved meats. To, you're supposed to read the book. Not, not eat, eat it. it. Oh, <laughs> oh shoot. <laughs> uh, it is a renaissance. Uh, up through, let's say, World War II, uh, we had uh, hundreds of small producers doing all sorts of things in which preservation is a key component. We lose all of it or most of it after the war uh, in, as America becomes industrialized with its food system. But there's still some people out there that are doing things that they had done for hundreds of years, both uh, uh, going back to the 17th century and then recent immigrants, recent meaning late 9th into the 20th century. And then a whole renaissance being driven by interests around great food, great beer, great wine that translates into people exploring the place of fermentation as a way to not only preserve things but to create really unique flavors. Can you talk a little bit about fermentation as it applies to cured meats? Because uh, most of the time you don't, you don't really like those two ideas to go together. Uh, the best way to understand something like a, a cheese or a uh, a sausage, which uh, a salami that has been fermented, is that it is con it's considered controlled spoilage. Now, that was a really odd term for me when <laughs> I first encountered it, and then I th started thinking about it, and I said, you know, it makes sense. If it's uncontrolled, you don't eat it. Um, the Chinese teas. Those of us in the West who eat cheese, they say that's rotten milk. And for them, for their tastes, that's very true. Fermentation for cured meats is principally in smaller uh, items like a salami, for example, where you allow mostly lactobacillus varieties to do this wonderful work for you. With a whole muscle, for example, a prosciutto, it's the enzymatic uh, work inside the muscle that makes that transformation. In both cases, salt is a primary component to that whole evolution because the things that are controlled, you control for the amount of water. Water is an ideal environment for all sorts of things to thrive, not just good things, but things that we don't want. 
So you want to reduce the amount of water, which makes an, unhos- an inhospitable environment for bacteria and other dangerous pathogens to thrive. You control for the amount of salt. And you also look for a level of acid, which again, mitigates pathogenic development in either a whole muscle or a salami. So it is a very controlled, highly skilled um, approach, which literally over several thousand years, we figure out how to do and make the food not only delicious, but equally important, if not more important, that it's safe. As you can see, listeners, Jeff Roberts knows what he's talking about, not just the science behind salted and cured, but also the stories behind these meats and the the really unique treasures that you can find in America today and the story behind them. Jeff, how long ago did people start to discover and learn these methods for preserving meats? Almost from the time that humans walked the earth. We have to. It's a... It's a it, It's not something that we do because I want to be able to go into my pantry and find something delicious. I wanted to go into my pantry because that was the only source of food when uh, those of us living in the northern hemisphere or in colder climates, we needed food for the winter. Or when food was scarce, what's in my pantry? So one of the things I discovered was the place – of all of these unique techniques, smoke is one of the first. Humans are living in caves. They have fire. Smoke rises to the roof of the cave, and they hung their meat up there. It helped to preserve them, also gave them pretty unique smoky flavor. And kept the flies away, right? (laughs) And kept the flies away, yes. Uh, The Quicha people in the Andes were doing very unique things. They're the first ones to create freeze-drying, which most of us think about freeze-dried trail mixes Mm -hmm. we can take out on our hiking trips. But they were freeze-drying potatoes several thousand years ago. Uh, The Inuit, when they would um, fish for salmon, they used the cold, dry wind to dry a butterflied fillet of salmon. It works. And we had to do this in order to survive. There's just no question that we wouldn't have survived as a species without those kinds of breakthroughs. Now, uh, even today, there are remarkable places around the world where you can find some of these uh, specialty meats and some places where, you know, you can only find them because of designation of origin uh, statutes. But your book is really about America's preserved meats. Nonetheless, you write in the book that the story of cured meat is really a story about immigrants. Explain. Yes. Other than Native Americans... One of the things that the Quicha people teach other Native Americans, their word was charqui. They preserved uh, animal flesh. That word gets translated by the Spanish to jerky. Uh, Native Americans are making venison or elk jerky, which they also discover they can pulverize and mix with animal fat and dried fruits, and they made pemmican, which is one of the most 
nutritious, energy-supplying foods anybody could ever eat. And explorers in the Antarctic and the Arctic took them with them. Our first European settlers into New England and the Middle Atlantic states brought preservation techniques, some of which relied on fermentation, but more often relied on smoke. So one of the companies that I researched, I was able to trace the current company's ancestors all the way back to Lancashire, England, 600 years of smoking and preserving meat. Those traditions, if we're looking at the first European-introduced cured meat in the States, it will be country ham. Everybody did it. It was the way that you preserved for the wintertime in the same way that up until the 1850s, we're making cheese on the farm because that was the way we preserved milk for the winter. As the Germans arrived, they brought an entirely different set of ideas because the climate in Germany was different. They couldn't ferment in the way that, let's say, the Italians might. So they use a lot more smoke and much of the German worsts that were produced are, use smoke as a critical component for – or they are cooked. So charcuterie, which is the French term, salumi, the Italian term, is this very broad uh, category, not just fermented but also cooked or semi-cooked. Summer sausage is a cooked product and it lasts. So what we discover is that each succeeding wave, the Germans in places like New York introduced all kinds of techniques. People loved it, not just the Germans. And then you have the arrival of Italians and Poles and Czechs, Hungarians, um, who not only in places like Boston and New York, but Cleveland and Chicago, and they're opening uh, companies to make food similar to what they had at home. And for decades, that's how a lot of these companies thrived, buying pork from uh, small farms that are local. Even in New York City, they would just hop over the Hudson River to buy their raw materials to make uh, great st uh, salami, great uh, smoked worsts, whatever. That's still happening. We have immigrants that arrived after World War II from the Balkans, for example, who brought very different ideas, a lot of fermentation, a lot of smoke, a considerable use of chilies in their products. And the first one that I visited in Astoria, Queens, I didn't want to leave. <laughs> the aromas were so enticing. And it's the kind of building you'd sort of walk by and not really pay attention to. And wow, what a place. Can I ask you one other question about uh, history while we're talking about this? And I'm going to take us back a little farther, but also to the present. 
are all wild hogs in the Americas today here because of colonization and because of the importance of having pork and and cured meat? I mean, you talk about um, explorers basically dropping off pigs and then they're allowed to go feral. And I'm I'm curious if all of our wild hogs these days can can be descended from those uh, yes. that were dropped off. There, when we look at hog species that whole, that very large family there are some animals in the western hemisphere who are related but they're not hogs the way we understand them the spaniards bring them with them and they left them on islands because they knew they were coming back and they had a ready food supply it's really brilliant you know let them go and eat they'll uh, they'll reproduce and there'll be a food supply when we get here Hernan de Soto, when he was looking for the Fountain of Youth, lands in Florida and brings pigs with him, which basically traveled with his expedition. They needed meat. It was there. De Soto introduces hogs to Native Americans who get a – who all of a sudden, wow, there's this entirely new, rapidly reproducing food stuff that we're enjoying. Uh, in New England, what happens is that they weren't fenced. In the uh, the animals go out into the forest and they forge, they eat everything, and they get big. Uh, wall Street, when it was a wall, was put up because there were so many hogs on Manhattan Island that they had to fence them out. Remarkable, in my opinion. Um, I do want to say one thing that that as I'm describing what happens, and and it, and I'll come back to your question about f these feral hogs. Th th uh, humans have had a yin yang uh, history with hogs. The pig is nature's most efficient converter of food to muscle and fat. There is maybe except for maybe insects. Other than that, this is the one. They're clean. If they're kept in a, in a, in a, 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 on a farm, they will cr create one place where they go to the bathroom. They never do anything else there because they're that sanitary. And people say, well, they're dirty animals. They wallow. And there's a reason for this. Just like a dog, they don't have sweat glands. And in order for them to stay cool, they're either under a canopy or they wallow. Um, dust helps to keep parasites off of the skin. So inherently, they're not uh, an animal that's dirty. We have figured out how they can do any number of things for us as a species, some of which are some of us would just re are repelled by. But they're not a dirty animal uh, by nature. Those animals that were let loose, that's how we grew them for a long time. And mm -hmm. the way that we would then harvest them is uh, during the course of the growing season, a farmer would every night put a little bit of corn out near the fence. The animals always knew that there was something there to eat and they would come back. So at the end of the season, they would be there and they could then be corralled and then sent to slaughter. The animals were eating in the fall everything that dropped from the trees, nuts of all kinds, which 
are referred to as mast, Mm -hmm. M-A-S-T. So acorns, uh, pecans, any beech nuts, they convert those nuts and all those beautiful oils and flavors into flesh and uh, fat. That's part of what flavored them. Go ahead. So today, the sad thing is, is that feral animals are everywhere. There are some in Vermont. Um, oh, now you're starting a controversy, Jeff. <laughs> That's a whole other show. Uh, it is. <laughs> but there are. And they they appear to have escaped from some of these um, hunting reserves. What happens is, is that the animal almost immediately begins to revert back to what it was naturally. That's part of what we've seen in the southern states. In- well, and you write in the book that in, in the southern states in particular, you know, the, these um, feral hogs can be real nuisances. I mean, really big problems in some parts of this country. But they're often now appearing or starting to appear on some menus that, yes. that there is even um, cured meats that are coming from feral hogs, which is a way to, you know, to help take care of this problem. But you also talk about how... Uh, breeders are starting to breed pigs that have better flavor. And yeah. part of that is pigs that are not so lean. You know, for, for a while in this country, we were leaning towards lean pork. You know, this was supposed to be the other white meat. And producers of bacon and ham and all of these other wonderful preserved meats that you talk about are saying, they these don't taste good. Give us pigs that taste good. And I'm curious if the feral hogs that are on the menu, aren't they lean because they've been out in the forest? Generally, they're not mm. uh, because they basically are out there foraging on whatever they find. And they're in, they're in places where there are forests. Uh, in places like Texas or the Carolinas, they're in both forest and farmland and they eat everything. You know, if, if the farmer has planted a, uh, a field of corn, it's almost impossible to keep the animals out. That's the problem. That's the part of the problem. So the, the the financial loss to farmers in many states today is really considerable. So they are hunted. They're not you, – you're not allowed by law to shoot an animal and then send it to a restaurant. They have to be trapped and then kept in quarantine for a period of time. Everything looks good. Then they can be sent to a USDA-certified slaughterhouse – and then they show up on menus as wild boar. Um, we don't need enough wild boar to make a dent in the population, but it is a direction that we are headed. And it's something when we think about nuisance plants and animals, most of these we can eat. We're talking to Jeff Roberts. He's the author of Salted and Cured, Savoring the Culture, Heritage, and Flavor of America's Preserved Meats. I promise we'll stop talking about feral hogs, and we're going to talk about some of the wonderful food you can eat and all of the places that Jeff visited in researching this book. And let's go to Michael, who's calling in from Windsor. Hi, Michael. Go right ahead. Hello, Jane and Jeff. This is Michael from Windsor, and I I wondered if Jeff could comment on the uh, cured meat uh, called soup. Soupy. Oh like, uh, yes. Yeah, Jeff. Now you yeah. recognize it. Yeah, this is a, this is a um, the name that the Fortuna Company, that's based out of of um, Sandgate, uh, Vermont, uh, they produce. They gave it this name. It's a type of soprasata, and one of the things is that you find soprasata all the way through Italy. It's what makes them different. 
are the types of grinds from coarse to very fine, how they're flavored, whether some of them actually include um, small chunks of fat uh, as part of the recipe. Uh, the soupy is just they've that's a trademark name by the by the Fortuna company. Uh, fabulous sausage to salami to say the least, and uh, it's great. Uh, even though it's manufactured now outside of the state, uh, the company is uh, still Patty uh, Fortuna uh, Standard is still doing some wonderful stuff, inventing new recipes all the time. Oh, sounds wonderful. Let's hear from Jenneth calling in from Springfield. Hi, Janeth. Go ahead. Hi. How are you? Great. What do you think? Um, I have a, a couple of quick questions um, and a real brief uh, minor correction. It was uh, Ponce de Leon who was looking for the Fountain of Youth. The <laughs> was looking. See, he's, he's so-called discovered, discovered uh, the Mississippi River, but I think he discovered it for the Europeans and not for Native peoples. Um, my question is, give me some idea about how peppers... Uh, and other spices were used uh, in the East uh, really early on, far before the Europeans. Peppers and spices in curing meats, you mean? Yeah, pepper. Spices were very uh, important, and they were part of the Silk Road uh, that was said that came out of Turkey and came out of other Eastern countries. Salt was important, as usual, but the pepper and other spices were used for something I thought they were for preserving. It might be for something else, and I'm curious about that. Uh, great question. The uh, First of all, spices have been a commodity and a currency for thousands of years. Uh, long, but so when you use the word pepper, I believe what you're referring to here is black pepper. What we too often refer to as pepper when we're in a supermarket is the bell pepper, uh, which is actually a member of the chili family coming out of the Americas, not discovered until 500 years ago. What happens with the use of a variety of spices, most of which are from uh, Asia, Southeastern Asia, and the Pacific Islands, they are not used so much as preservatives. They can be. The critical one would have been black pepper, but combined with salt. So one way that some of these spices were used as preservatives was in Egypt, not for something to eat. We use them to preserve mummies. Hmm. So the use of spices Honey, for example, as a curing agent, uh, we should be so lucky. You know, some of the mummies, they, I just saw something this morning. They just discovered a 3,800-year-old tomb, per perfectly preserved uh, mummies. And we should be so lucky that I-89 lasts three years, let alone 3,000 years. <laughs> um, fascinating story about how uh, spices have a critically important role in the preservation of many different things. So that's a so what happens in Well, I guess the, we should remember we are meat after oh yeah. all. Oh yeah. And they did some very odd things with some of these spices. The it's this exchange especially of chili when it arrives with the Spaniards to Europe that you begin to see some very exciting changes in how 
salamis, and other cured meats are flavored. Yes, they do have the ability to repel insects. So some of the country hams uh, in the States, they used a black pepper mix to keep the flies away from the meat. So thank you. That's a, that was, and you're right. Uh, DeSoto was the guy who crossed the southern U.S., eventually ends up in Arkansas, finds all of these unique places. It's a three-year expedition. Imagine that today. You know, um, I I was thinking, Jeff, as I read your book and you talked about uh, salami and Lebanon bologna and all of these things that I just I kept remembering back to my childhood in the 1980s. And, you know, my experience with some of, of what you talk about in the book was processed bologna. And, you know, my stepfather made me a sandwich every single day that was a slice of really kind of gross bologna <laughs> with a squirt of yellow mustard sandwiched between two slices of white bread. How far away from that are we today in the places that you were Well, that's still there. <laughs> <laughs> that size of sandwiches still exist. Um, you know, and probably today I would love it, I have to say, but but not every day. It, you know, it got, it got old. Uh, bologna picks up its name from the city of Bologna and Mortadella, which is the in a sense, the ancestor. This is a um, a finely almost emulsified meat. Again, I'm looking for ways that I use every part of an animal. I cannot afford to discard something if I can figure out a way to make it safe and to eat it. So with many of the uh, pieces of scrap, they're emulsified with fats they're cooked. Now, with a mortadella, true mortadella has these wonderful little cubes of fat embedded in it. And the best also have these fabulous uh, pistachios from Sicily also embedded in it. it. You compare the two and it's – this is really day and night. Mm-hmm. Um, our hot dogs today don't at all reflect what we had historically, although there's a renaissance of hot dog production Mm -hmm. uh, with using real natural casings. So, you know, even Nathan's uh, from Coney Island, all beef, but a a casing that was beef. um, So anybody could eat it. There were no religious issues around that. And it snapped when you bought, when you bought, uh, (laughs) when you bit into into it. it. Yes. Um, that sort of thing is something that we're now rediscovering. There's all of these new hot dog companies who are talking about creating artisan hot dogs. Um, I celebrate this because it's reintroducing both the techniques and the tradition, but also the flavors. And in order to do something, if they're going to create an expensive hot dog, There's moving away from the use of commodity hogs, which is also a theme that runs throughout the book, is what we've done since the late 1960s to create the other white meat. Um, And when we say the other white meat, that was a contrast to everybody suddenly eating chicken, which up through World War II, nobody ate. And all of a sudden, everybody wants to eat chicken 
and the hog gets pushed to the side, America is built on hogs, not beef. If you could afford it, you ate something that was pork. If you could really afford it, then on occasions you would have beef. But beef doesn't really show up as a main part of our diet until after World War II when we could then afford far more. The, the place of the war and the depression and um, our inability to purchase things after the war, I don't want those restraints anymore. I want to eat and I want to eat a lot. <laughs> Yes, and, and and on to today. Again, uh, Jeff, you're coming up with another show for us to do and, and one we have before, this idea of I want to eat a lot. It's certainly an issue yeah. in America. Nicole writes, I recently went to Hungary to learn how to preserve meat. It was eye-opening how much of a tradition this is becoming in the U.S., even on a small-scale farm, a trend I've also witnessed in Vermont with the professionalization of butchering. Jim says, I run Cherry Rail Farm in Brattleboro, where I raise pasture-raised pigs. To me, pasture-raised means the woods where the pigs eat, just as feral pigs would have for centuries. The meat is amazing because they are allowed to roam and forage. And let's get a call in here from Bill in Hinesburg. Hi, Bill. Go right ahead. Hi, um, Jeff. It's good to hear your voice. I have a question. It's perhaps a little a little dark, but I remember I'm a great fan of charcuterie and also of your books. I remember reading many years ago, um, though, about smoked meat, and they had done a study in the Georgian Republic where it's very, very commonly eaten um, and a very, very high incidence of stomach cancer. Can you comment at all? on, you know, any possible relationship between smoked um, charcuterie and stomach, stomach cancer? Well, my response, Bill, would be that there's clearly evidence about the role of smoke, whether we're talking barbecue, uh, whether we're talking cured meats, and other things that we like smoke in where there seems to be a somewhat higher incidence of cancer. I'm going to take your question and twist it around a little bit because it's not there's something we haven't talked about and that's the whole role of nitrates and nitrites as a preservative as a preserve preservatives in cured meats. And you have and, a gripe about this. And I do have a gripe about it. Um so the 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 definition between a cured meat and an uncured meat is that the, the, the USDA defines nitrates and nitrites, something like, say, a pink salt, which is a preservative salt. That's synthetic. And if you use that in your process, you have to indicate that this is cured. That's the only term you're allowed to use. And you have to show that there are nitrates and nitrites in your uh, process. Uncured means that I can still use products that contain nitrates and nitrites, but they're not synthetic. So there's a whole batch of vegetables. Celery, and I'll just pick on that one right now, celery is one of them. You and I, if we're even if we're vegetarians, we eat a lot of vegetables and they're loaded with nitrates naturally. Uh, my gripe is that when I look at a package that says uncured bacon, for example, 
somewhere in that label, there will be a little footnote, except the nitrates, nitrites found in naturally occurring sea salt or celery salt. Well, I think we should be a lot more transparent. Um, this is not the producer's problem as much as it is how the USDA has defined some of this. And in my opinion, that's confusing consumers. I'd like them to understand that uh, the place of a preservation chemical, if used appropriately, does the right thing in the same way that the use of celery salt does the right thing. And the evidence that comes out of a lot of research shows, and this is now 20 to 25-year-old evidence, the ingestion of nitrates and nitrites do not have, are not cancer-causing um, in, in any way, shape, or the, the evidence uh, that I saw from Canada, from the U.S., consumers should be far less, because there are a lot more things, in my opinion, are, are at high risk. You know, uh, Jeff also goes into detail in the book about some of the other ways that regulations that are put in place um, to to make sure that we have food safety in this country also in some ways maybe um, curtail the ability for producers to make some of the meats that they would really like to make or, or to make them in the way that they would like to make. And we don't have time to get into that today, Jeff. But just before um, before I let you go, it seems like a lot of the U.S. production, at least large scale, is in the South. And you, you write lovingly of some visits that you made to places like Louisiana. But is there anything happening in Vermont? Is this something that we are enjoying as well? Here? We are beginning to see more. There's a fair amount being done in restaurants. It's a different level of inspection. It doesn't mean that that what they have to go through is less rigorous, uh, but they can sell direct. They can do stuff on premises. Uh, there are several companies now, some some of which are working out of the Mad River Food Hub, one here in Montpelier, Bow, that has started its own line of charcuterie that they will be wholesaling. This is exciting. Biggest challenge, in my opinion, is probably finding the right animals at a sufficient level of quantity to be able to do this. Well, you know, it, it's still emerging. So maybe we'll get there and we can see, uh, you know, the second edition of your book in 10 years, see if you've had to adjust some of your numbers on, on the hogs. Jeffrey P. Roberts is the author of Salted and Cured, Savoring the Culture, Heritage, and Flavor of America's Preserved Meats. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. pleasure. And thank you all for calling in or sending in messages.